We begin with Syria. Today could well be a watershed moment in the story of the Islamic State group. The group self-styled capital of its constructed caliphate, the city of Raqqa, on the northeast bank of the Euphrates River, has fallen. Now reclaimed after a four-month battle by these US-backed fighters. Inside an ordinary residential house on the outskirts of Raqqa, something extraordinary is taking place. One of them said to me, now that ISIS have gone, we're fighting a new war with all of the, the blast injuries that we were having at the time. And it definitely it felt very much like that at the beginning, you know, trying to set up that kind of project. You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from MSF. In mid-October 2017, the so-called Islamic State group were finally expelled from their stronghold in the Syrian city of Raqqa. Weeks later, people began returning to the city. My first impressions of uh, Raqqa when I first arrived was just a scene of utter devastation. That's Michael Sheck, an MSF nurse from Scotland. You might remember Michael from the first series of this podcast. This was a city that it had functioning electricity, running water. Um, the whole facade of the city has just been blown apart. There's rubble across the entire street and it's littered with explosive devices now. Michael was a part of the first international MSF team to arrive in Raqqa. Their job was to help establish a trauma stabilisation unit on the outskirts of the city. As Michael explains, people returning to Raqqa were finding not just the ordinary remnants of war, unexploded bombs and ordnance, but something far more sinister. People that come in from blast injuries, it's not generally just one person, it can be a family sometimes, um, it can be a group of people who are just trying to clear out, like a, um, say for instance a school, so that kids can go back to school. Raqqa is littered with improvised explosive devices, many of them quite sophisticated, with heat and motion sensors, trip wires, many often operating on time delays. They have been planted in houses, in cupboards, under beds. You'll have maybe four or five people coming in, and well, there's no ambulances uh, within Raqqa. Half the roads are strewn with rubble, with possible pieces of um, explosive devices there. So you'll literally see people coming in the back of pickup trucks, in the, uh, in the boots of uh, people carriers, or even wheelbarrows. With most of the roads leading out of Raqqa either damaged or blocked, it can take up to two and a half hours by ambulance to reach the nearest functioning hospital with surgical capacity and secondary healthcare. As a result, people with significant injuries are often at risk of dying before or during the journey. There are checkpoints on that whole route once you enter Syria, so you, you get the feeling that you are far away from anywhere, behind lots of checkpoints in a zone that has clearly seen a lot of destruction recently. And it's a little bit eerie. Also in Michael's team was another podcast alumnus, MSF doctor Javed abdul Munaim. It reminded me of Haiti after the earthquake, where that level of destruction, that many buildings lying in rubbles across an entire expanse of a city, 
but it's just that much more sinister because it was much more complete. The destruction of Raqqa, just anecdotally looking as you drive through, compared to what I saw in Port-au-Prince, was much more complete and not a natural disaster. So it's sinister. The MSF team, including Michael, Javid and Dr. Pippa Petz, who we'll hear more from later, opened an emergency room in Raqqa within three weeks of the end of the offensive. The ordinary house with a few small rooms soon became a hive of activity in the east of the city. During the first two weeks, 55 blast victims were arriving in the small emergency room each week, almost eight major trauma patients a day. Having skirted around and met Syrians through lots of MSF work around the Mediterranean, in Calais, in Jordan, in Lebanon, actually I've finally got into Syria. Javed Abdelmonayem, an accident and emergency doctor from London, has spent much of his MSF career involved in the Syrian crisis. From organising medical donations through Lebanon at the start of the conflict, through to rescuing refugees on the Mediterranean, Javed has seen the impact of this catastrophic conflict across the world. But it was only at the end of 2017 that Javed finally made it into Syria. My first response when I first got to Raqqa was, finally. And that's not because of my sort of patchy history of working with Syrians. It was actually the journey took a really long time. It was six days from the UK. And you've driven across large swathes of northern Iraq and northern Syria and the the countryside changes at times from beautiful green rolling alpine hills where the river Tigris is to really bleak, barren, and you track the Turkish border which has this three metre high concrete wall for hundreds of kilometres all the way along that they've built. And you arrive and of course it's not just to drive into town, there are bunkers, there are blown up vehicles, there are blown up bridges, there are danger landmine signs everywhere. MSF doctor Pippa Pett, also from the UK, had a similar first impression. I think the, the seeing the city is just something that your brain can't really quite compute. You just can't get your head around it. Um, the, the total destruction of, you know, no building is left um, untouched. In the early days when we first got there, there were, you know, some signs of kind of normal life resuming again. And that's increased as, as we've been there. But really the the worst hit areas are more in the city. So I think the first time we went into the city that was really very shocking. It's a bit um a bit eerie really. It's a bit like a kind of post World War Two scene. Um and it it really it really kind of brings home to you what the population there have lived through um, and how, how extreme it, it was um, for the last bits of the, the conflict there. What they found was in those early weeks, so you're talking the last two weeks of November, the first two weeks of December, a huge number of civilians coming in with massive trauma. So there are landmines and improvised explosive devices strewn across the city, the remnants of war. 
um, other things in other explosive devices intentionally placed there to cause injury. Others that are landmines that were were originally part of defensive fortifications or just unexploded bombs that have fallen from an aircraft. And if you touch it, they go. And so civilians are coming home to Raqqa that, you know, the fighting has stopped. So-called Islamic State have been expelled. They want to come home from the internally displaced camps that they've been living in, in the countryside. So they come home and they're not aware of all these danger munitions everywhere and being blown up. And the staff that I joined were telling me in those first uh, two, three weeks, you, you'd hear them go off constantly. And, and they think, right, we're going to get some cases soon. The people of Raqqa are facing an almost impossible choice. Either stay on uncertainly in the temporary shelters of the camps surrounding the city, often shared with many other families, or return to their damaged homes in Raqqa. It's a level, I am told, a level of mining or, or imp you know, improvised explosive devices that has not been seen ever before. And it's in a civilian centre and it's in under beds, in kitchen shelves, on the streets, it's everywhere, everywhere. And um, civilians don't know. We were told one story of how one of these mines was on such a delay that the, the, uh, the family member, the man, had come home, checked everything was fine, family had moved in, uh, he called them and, or, or, or you know, got them to come, gone back to the camp, brought them. And um, then a mine went off. So it must have been on a delayed timer, long enough to, such that days had passed. By mid-December, the team of Syrian medics in the trauma unit were struggling to cope with the number of patients reaching the unit. An urgent request for additional staff was made. So any, on any shift, you'd have an international member of staff, a Syrian doctor, uh, three Syrian nurses, and a nurse assist. So about... Um, five to six people on shift. So, but with my arrival, it would be an extra member of international staff to sort of handle those casualties. Um, so that's why I was there. It's my speciality. With Javed on board and two other international staff, the size of the team had almost doubled. The role of a trauma stabilization unit is to save lives. Once a patient reaches the unit, the team's focus is to stabilize that patient. One such case arrived and he was really very close. I couldn't feel his pulse, put it that way, but he was still breathing. I mean, he was quite literally in that window where you can't, there isn't quite enough blood left in your system that you can feel their pulse, but he's just about got enough blood in his system that's getting to the brain that's, and he is breathing. I mean, you're talking probably three, five breaths left before you die. I mean, it's, it's literally just that moment. For some reason there was, instead of the usual, say, seven in the department, there were 12 of us. And when I say that it needed all of our pairs of hands to make all the right interventions in time to keep that man alive, it needed it. I think if any one of, one of us wasn't there at that moment, by chance, he wouldn't have survived. He was very, very, very lucky. Yeah. 
The trauma team's role is to intervene in those crucial minutes after trauma. It's their job to stop the bleeding, wash wounds, splint broken bones, give strong painkillers and start patients on antibiotics to control infections, all with the aim of transferring the patient to our hospital in Tel Abiyad, two and a half hours drive to the north, where we have full trauma surgery services. And we gave, um, you know, four units of blood, three litres of fluids, we applied the tourniquets, lots of painkillers, anaesthetic. Washed out everything, dressed it so that to minimise any any excess bleeding, and 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 shipped him out. Um, and we, he was so critical that normally we don't send uh, one of the doctors as an escort because there's usually one doctor in shift, and then there'd be me and one backup. So, but we actually sent a doctor on escort for him just to make sure that he arrived at his destination, and he did, um, and he needed upwards of 20 more pro uh, units of blood products to, to refill him. To Pippa, the benefit of the trauma unit was not simply just for the patients. For her Syrian colleagues, it provided a purpose again, the ability to get back to work and help their fellow Syrians. I think certainly that, to see the, see the, the national staff team rallying together and coming from very different nursing um, and doctor backgrounds and and it being quite new for everyone um, that was that was really really good um, for them and, and a lot of them have said um, to me that it's a bit of a lifeline for them working again because they haven't been able to work for so long and they feel like they can do something now you know it's, it's quite empowering for them um, and they, they said that they just used to sit at home and not, you know, they'd be dwelling on things a lot. So I think mental health-wise, even though there is obviously the, the awful trauma that they're seeing, they're, they're actually finding a lot of positive effects as well because they, they feel, you know, they're, they're, they're medical people and, and this is their vocation and, and they feel like they, they have a purpose again. And so that's really great. So to start with, we are in one of the theatres at the MSF facility in Tel Abiyad. That's MSF surgeon Shazir, working in an operating theatre at Tel Abiyad Hospital, a two and a half hour drive north of Raqqa. It's 9pm and we just received a call 30 minutes ago saying, telling us that we've received a couple of patients in ER who are, uh, who are victims of blast injury from a mine. Apparently all of these patients are teenagers who found a landmine close to a pond and they tried playing with it, I don't know, trying to open it or play with it and the mine did its job, which is supposed to explode, of course. And we've received this boy in theater now due to that. Uh, Saline? 
Talabiad is one of the few places in the region providing complex and life-saving surgical care. In partnership with the Kurdish Health Authority, MSF is providing a wide range of support to the hospital. We're working in the paediatric unit, maternity, emergency room and operating theatre. We're also supporting vaccination programmes, outpatient and inpatient departments, as well as mental health support. It's here that the patients patched up by the MSF team in Raqqa are sent. But without a functioning phone network, how do the team in Tel Abiyad know that a patient is on their way from Raqqa? We had Wi-Fi. It was being generated through a satellite connection. The only way that you can contact the trauma hospital that's going to receive the patient we've just sent is through Wi-Fi. And you're not going to start FaceTiming. WhatsApp is secure. It's a secure chat. And okay, we don't put in any patient identifiers, but you're able to send information that conveys to the surgeon who's waiting at the other end what's going to arrive and when, what's been done to that patient and what state they could probably expect to find them in. That saves them having to take down those clean, fresh dressings you've only put on three hours earlier, particularly if it's not then going to be a limb or life-threatening injury. If they can just see it on the phone, they'll receive the patient, but they won't take the dressings down just to keep that lovely, clean environment that you've generated in Raqqa and not to expose it to it needlessly. It just saves 24 hours for the patient and so on and so forth. So it's a really nice little net way of doing that. Not only was WhatsApp providing an important referral service for patients on their way to Talabiad, it was also creating an essential feedback loop for the team in Raqqa. On New Year's Day, Javid was working in Talabiad and recognised that the team there could WhatsApp pictures of their patients' x-rays back to Raqqa. And actually it very much changed what we did because these improvised devices, it isn't just a shard of shrapnel that could enter apart from the traumatic explosion Actually, they've been manufactured with lots of little ball bearings. And these look on the skin, even if it, um, just like peppering your skin, maybe three to five millimetres in diameter, peppering. Now, if that hasn't broken your tibia through and through, which is the big bone in your leg, to me, looking at just your leg without x-rays in a living room in Raqqa, I say, that leg's not broken. Clearly, there's going to be foreign material in there. If you can move your leg, if you can have normal sensation, if you're not bleeding excessively, let's just clean and wrap. We're not in a situation where we're going to start doing cosmetic removal of foreign bodies. You know, we're in a, we're in, we're in a crisis situation. You can go home. Actually, what we learned from looking at a few x-rays was that, you know, one came back, yeah, the tibia was intact, as, as, in, as in structurally it was intact, but there was, it was shattered you know, there were, there were chips off it. The smaller bone was shattered through and through. Actually, that's a really dirty, nasty internal fracture. And we weren't seeing that in Raqqa and we weren't... It would be better to treat those patients surgically rather than, as we were doing, giving them a very good wash and antibiotics. If, there was n if the bones hadn't been touched at all by the metal, it's completely okay. We were assuming that if there was no break. But we, there were lots of splinters without breaks, if I can make that clear. Seeing these x-rays changed how Javid and the MSF team managed a large proportion of their patients. Patients who didn't have obvious major wounds, but could still have had internal injuries unseen to the naked eye in an ER without complex equipment like x-ray machines. We started talking about making an x-ray bus, so to speak. So we'd store up those patients for two or three days, come back to us on this day, 
we'll put you in our transport, we'll drive you non-urgently up to Tel Abyad in the middle of the day so that you can get back in time, we'll get all your x-rays done, we'll have an evaluation and we'll take it from there, rather than sending them as hot cases at whatever time of day. The team in Raqqa were not just dealing with trauma cases. With healthcare almost non-existent since the fall of the city in 2013, conditions like diabetes, angina and high blood pressure had gone unmanaged. In addition to the emergency trauma stabilisation that we're doing in that A&E, not only do we have a full outpatient department and a full vaccination extended programme for the whole countryside of Raqqa for children, we've also got seeing complications of chronic diseases. So diabetes that has been left untreated through vast parts of the war, um, high blood pressure, strokes, things that just haven't been managed effectively and suffering really nasty complications of that. For example, really awful leg ulcers that need amputations in diabetics who have poor control. And of course, maternal health was a major priority. The team set up an outpatient department to make sure expectant mums are given the antenatal care they deserve. As nurse Michael Sheck points out, without decent antenatal care, the outcome can be catastrophic. I had one dad uh, carry his um, child who was just newly born um, about half an hour running straight to the MSF facility in the middle of the night because um, the child was blue um, and uh, brought to the MSF facility so we could try and do everything we could to keep it alive. It was very challenging, very challenging. And this child was born um, premature. Um, when it was born, it wasn't really breathing greatly. And by the time it got to us, it was very blue. Like, usually there's maybe a bit of blue in the face, like which it was blue all over, wasn't breathing very well. Um, but we managed, um, with what resources we had, uh, we managed to give it oxygen. We had to bag it for a little bit, breathe for the um, kid for a little while and eventually started breathing for itself. Ideally in these situations, um, we'd also have an incubator or something that every single kind of neonatal unit in the country has, uh, but we don't obviously have those kind of things. So Michael and the team did what MSF does best in low resource settings. They had to improvise. We have saline bags that are sitting in these metal bowls on top of um, basically diesel cookers that we basically keep warm so that if anyone gets um, injured from any blasts, if we don't have any blood left, we have these bags of uh, warm fluid so that then they're not getting hypothermic. So literally we just made a bed of these warm bags of uh, fluid um, and put, made sure it wasn't too hot and put the kid on top of it to keep it warm um, as a kind of mini incubator. Um, managed to stabilise the kid, it was breathing by itself and it was a nice pink colour and we managed to eventually get it transferred out of Raqqa and into another MSF facility up in Kobani um, where we actually have a neonatal intensive care unit where we can actually properly care for it. Um, I think I spoke to them um, when I was still in Raqqa and they said yeah it kept us up for a couple of nights but it was still doing well last time I heard. One chronic condition that's specific to this part of the world is called thalassemia. It's a hereditary disease. Cases are found in Africa and Asia, but it's particularly prevalent in Eastern Mediterranean countries like Turkey, Greece, and of course, Syria. It's a genetic disorder where you cannot manufacture red blood cells. So it's a, you, you get a profound anemia. 
the way that you keep patients alive with this disorder is to give them blood transfusions as necessary as they need them, as required. The problem also with giving that much blood, red blood cells, a large component of red blood cells is iron. In giving that much blood to these patients, they get iron overload. And they then suffer complications of having iron deposit in their body systems. And you're talking children. You don't live with thalassemia into adulthood. In the UK, in the Western world, in rich parts of the world, you do. Without any physical deformities, treatment is uninterrupted, it's complex, it's intensive, it's available, it's good. But since the start of the war in Syria, the breakdown in the healthcare system has meant that this type of treatment has just not been available. So not only have we seen children suffering severe untreated anemia, which is what thalassemia essentially is, where parents have crossed front lines and gone to huge extents to keep their children alive in, in buying blood products or bags to give transfusions, or they, they've, they've sourced blood to keep their children alive, but it's been unsafe transfusions. And sadly, we found children infected with hepatitis C and HIV with unsafe blood transfusions. Unfortunately, not only have unsafe transfusions proliferated in this part of Syria, there has also been a total lapse or breach in the supply of the iron removal therapy. It's called chelation. And these children are grey. There's so much iron in their body, they look like iron. Grey, I've never seen it. And I worked in a part of London that had a high burden of thalassemia. You know, I've seen a lot of thalassemia, I've never seen it children with this level of complication of iron overload. Extraordinary. And you get, your, your, your heart gets stiff with iron and you get heart failure. And your liver gets clogged up with iron and you get liver failure. And I was seeing these children at the end stages of heart failure and liver failure, end stages of life in our emergency room in Raqqa. MSF has started to provide the blood transfusions and the iron removal therapy and we've tried our hardest to gather together all the previously known thalassemia patients that were in Raqqa and Tel Abiyad. So far, we have around 400 patients between the two centres. And the patients that are living in Raqqa, we don't do the transfusions for them in Raqqa or the iron transfusion therapy. We gather them together, whoever needs it, you know, weekly, three-weekly, whatever, we take them up, beautiful little, um, underneath the wing of paediatrics in Tel Abiyad, you know, lovely painted, counsellors, um, you know, toys, very comfortable surroundings, brightly, freshly cleaned, go up for the whole day, get your transfusion, check that you're all right, come back to Raqqa. So that's what we're doing now across that sort of, the directorate from Raqqa northwards up towards the Turkish border, which is pretty amazing because you, you know, when you see the extent to which these parents have gone to keep their children alive, um, you know, that's, it's pretty wonderful. Sadly, it's been at some expense, um, but you know, that's exactly the type of thing that we should be there doing, taking over that burden from them, because it's money as well that they, you know, they weren't spending on food or anything else.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Emergency. Between the end of November 2017 and the end of February 2018, the team in our trauma stabilisation unit in Raqqa treated 362 blast injuries. A staggering 50% of these blasts took place in people's homes. If you're listening to this podcast in the UK close to its release date, we're running an appeal for our work in Syria. If you would like to support the work of our teams in Raqqa and across Syria, we would hugely appreciate it. Go to msf.org.uk slash javid, that's msf.org.uk slash j-a-v-i-d to find out more. Or, if you're not in the UK and listening to this at some point in the future, you can help us prepare for the next emergency by giving to our general funds. Go to msf.org to find out where you can donate. Finally, just a quick note on this podcast. Unlike previous series, this year we won't be running episodes at regular intervals, but one-off special episodes every now and then. As always, it's your likes, comments and shares that help spread the word about this podcast and the work of MSF. If you can, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thank you. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.